0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. How's everyone doing? The bumper is brought to you by Matthew Kern. He's, our, he's in town today from upstate. It's so good to see you, Matthew. He also is a great videographer, you can hire him. Um, as well as many viatographers, actually, in our congregation. We have, like, several here today. Uh, very talented community. My name is Sarah New. I'm the executive director here at Front New York City. Um, all pronouns are okay with me. And I will be giving you... Ooh, I feel like a bit loud today. Maybe just me. Um, our sermon on how to read the Bible. Oh, uh, you know, that's a book I'm relying on today. I'm talking about how we got the Bible. Wow. Uh, a lot, I use the word Bible, like, 50 times in my sermon, so just... Um, don't play any drinking games with the word Bible as I give the sermon. So uh, the Bible is a big topic. I will not be able to cover, like, the biblical canon. I would encourage you, though, to look that up. Like, it's always a fun fact to Google why it is like the Catholic Bible has seven more books than the Protestant Bible, for instance, which is also a bit different than the Greek Bible or the Slavonic Bible. Uh, I'm just going to be talking today about biblical interpretation. Maybe I should put this here since the camera is there. Um, so with biblical interpretation, I, how, I know we all grew up with our, kind of our childhood Bibles. If you didn't grow up in the church, at some point you've encountered a Bible in your life. Um, and for me, it was always really important that, my, that we as kids read the Bible. Interpretation was never really emphasized because I think the assumptions we didn't need to do it. You just need to read it, and that would be it. So um, when we came to America, my parents instituted a point system where if you got 100 points, you could convert it to $10 cash. Um, and they would deduct points if you misbehaved, and I, I got deducted points a fair amount. But you got points as well if you read your Bible, if you did dishes, if you like, cleared the table. And so you could tell at some point that they instituted uh, three points, which was the most they would ever award if you did your quiet time which was, um, how, how many of you grew up with quiet time? Is that phrase? Okay, yeah. my parents would just say a QT, like you do your QT today. Um, so, you know, it involved, I don't know for you all, but I had to read it, I had to like meditate on it, and then I had to journal about it. That would be a completed quiet time. So I would show my parents the journal. And at some point you can tell they gave the three points because my journal entries went from like ramblings about my siblings and rantings to like meditations on two chronicles <laughs> chapter three, and you know, like Genesis five or something like that. So. I recently just went back to my parents and read my kid's journal, so that's why I have it fresh of mine. Um, but the kind of assumption between all of this was that reading was what's most important; interpretation was not, um, because it was just supposed to be clear and straightforward. Any 12-year-old, you know, 11-year-old could pick it up. Uh, obey it, and that would be it. So if the Bible said, if you're an adulterer, if you're a homosexual, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, like, that would be it. If if it's six-day creation, then, you know, so it is. Um, And this assumption that the Bible was sort of clear, without error, literal, directly applicable, um, has its certain origins, which I'll talk a bit about later, but for me personally, I didn't know it had a name. That was just the default way of reading the Bible. And so it kept me kind of locked into this mode of interpretation uh, which was um, essentially, as I would just say, a, a fundamentalist way of reading the Bible. So I would spend hours on the carpeted floor of my parents' bedroom when there would be a way for work, so like, ask some privacy, I had three younger siblings, just reading uh, over and over the chapters that were reference homosexuality or men submitting with men, maybe women, um, trying to figure out like what it meant, but also being like, this is what it means, you know, and wishing that I could like reinterpret it or change it or something. But I felt I couldn't, because I had to submit my desires, and I knew at that point, I was attracted to women, I had to submit my desires to the text, and it felt, interpretation felt dangerous, because it felt risky, it felt like I would be inserting my agenda into the Bible, and that basically means idolatry, I might as well be an atheist, it was a kind of slippery slope. Um, (laughs) So, what I did know then, uh, I mean, it it sounds a bit dire back then, but I think my brain developed this defense mechanism in which I just said, you know, that's okay, like, I'll never get married, it'll be fine, I'll be single, I'll just join a nunnery, was like my backup plan. I think I I preferred to be a monk, I think I like the outfits a bit better. Um, But... But in any case, I think what's ironic is that this belief that the Bible is clear, literal, direct, does not need interpretation, is itself an interpretation of the Bible. It's a a take on what the Bible is and is not. And although this mode of interpretation likes to say, you know, this text comes to us straight from God's lips all the way to us, um, actually it's a pretty recent phenomenon. You can tie this um, fundamentalist interpretation to the rise of fundamentalism, um, which most historians pinpoint to 1909 with the publication of a series of essays called The Fundamentals. And I'll explain what they say, um, but I have to go back first a few centuries. Uh, this is a very teaching-heavy sermon and series in general, so uh, just buckle in. So in the Middle Ages, no one could read. There are like five people could read. And there was like two Bibles for like a million people. You know, there's like sacred works of art. And to read the Bible, you had to be a highly trained priest, you know, interpretation, etc. Then printing Press came along. Technology, and it changes the church because now... You can distribute grammar texts for how to read Hebrew. You can distribute Bibles in people's homes for the first time. Now, everyone can interpret scripture. Everyone can be a pope, basically. Everyone has their own authority. Then you have modern signs. Galileo comes in and says, you know, the earth rotates around the sun. Modern signs are starting to contradict some things that are said in the Bible. And then people are also starting to read the Bible for themselves and they notice, hey, Biblical Hebrew only lists the consonants and as not list the vowels, and there's no punctuation. And depending on where you put the comma or period in a sentence, it can actually really change like what is a sentence and what is not. And people start uh, questioning, you know, who really wrote this part? Was it really Moses? If Moses, why did he say he was such a humble guy? And then um, fast forward in the late 1800s, you have biblical archaeology. So people can actually fact check you know, did King David actually exist? What about Abraham? You know, all these type of things. Basically, what you have emerging by certainly the late 1800s is a field called Modern Biblical Scholarship. You can Google it, it has all this stuff in around it. But in essence, and this is just my very layman's take, it basically sees the Bible as a collection of tribal tales that explain the history of how things came to be for your people. So for instance, why is the story of Adam in the Bible? Well, is to explain to your people why it is that childbirth sucks and working the ground sucks, like, because people did this thing, now this sucks. Um, why is there a story of the Great Flood, Well, according to modern biblical scholars? There's this text called the Epic of Gilgamesh from ancient Mesopotamia that predates really the people of Israel's text and stuff like that, which talks about, surprise, a big flood with a guy going and building a boat, bringing animals in. The boat gets stuck on a mountain. The guy sends doves out, like three doves and everything. And it's basically almost exactly the same as the story of the flood in Genesis. And the Israelites just take it, uh, plagiarize it in some ways, and just make their own tweaks. Why is there a story, this is the last example, of Lot, um, Abraham's nephew, getting drunk and impregnating his two daughters? Kind of random. Well, according to modern biblical scholars, the Israelites had two neighbors they really disliked. They are always fighting, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And in the story of the Bible, the two sons that Lot's poor daughters who were basically raped um, give birth to is ben the father of um, the Ammonites, and Moab, the father of the Moabites. And that's literally how the story ends. That's like the punchline, which is kind of funny. (laughs) If you think about it, it's basically an elaborate yo mama joke for, like, the Israelite boy to be able to go to, like, Ammonite boy and Moabite boy and say, The only reason your mother had you is because she slept with her father. Like that is basically, I think, it seems like the upshot of that story in the Bible. Um, And what it's funny, it's a little bit unsatisfying to think that the Bible is just a collection of your mama jokes, parental tales, and like plagiarized stories. And it's not only unsatisfying, I think it's a bit scary. And that is where fundamentalism kind of arose. It's a response to modern biblical scholarship and response to evolution. Um, A lot of conservative scholars got together and said, hey, our seminaries are like being swept by this like liberal doctrines. We need to get back to fundamentals. We need to prove the Bible is actually historically true. Seven day creation that passed a law in Tennessee in 1925 forbidding the teaching that man evolved from animals and stuff like that. Um, And a softer spin-off of that is called evangelicalism, (laughs) Billy Graham, and I think the only difference between the two originally is that evangelicals were willing to associate with non-fundamentalists. Fundamentalists, fundamentalists, though, were really good at technology, radio, revival meetings, Billy Graham, all that kind of stuff. And so I try to give this history anytime someone's asked me why it is that there tends to be young people in conservative churches and older people in progressive churches, Partly is because the conservative churches actually originate a lot more recently than the progressive mainline churches like the Episcopal Church or PCUSA. So hopefully that helps a little bit. So now you have the stage. You have modern biblical scholarship, which sees the Bible as just basically another book, one another tribe's book. And you have fundamentalism, which sees the Bible as like a divine copy and paste. Is there a third way in between the two? I think this is like the million-dollar question. I really don't really have really clear answers or any answers. I just want to give us some things to think about as a starting point, point. and this is a conversation for you to work out in your small groups, with your friends, with yourself. Um, so a starting point I think would be helpful to start with is a group called the Ancient Interpreters. Um, for this sermon, I'm going to rely really heavily on James Kugel's How to Read the Bible. He's a professor at Harvard and at some university in Israel. I really recommend checking it out. And so, to talk about this group called ancient interpreters, I'm gonna do another history. Rewind to a point in Israel's history called their first major exile. We talk about exile a fair amount on stage, talking about the Bible. It's really important. Just remember, at some point, Israel was exiled. Um, And the major exile point is at 586 BCE. There's another one that happens when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. But 586 BCE is the first major exile, and Israel gets captured by the Babylonian Empire, particularly Jerusalem and Judah, and they're dispersed. It's really important because before this point, most likely the modern biblical scholars are right, which is the Bible was not really like the word in the way we have this kind of reverence around it today, it was just like a collection of family stories and like laws that were passed down orally, not even written down. After the exile, they come back 50 years in exile. So you can imagine 50 years ago, people are coming back. Some people coming back have never even been born in Jerusalem. They were born in captivity. The old generation that knew how to run things, maybe were dead or like really old, had dementia, couldn't remember what's going on. So what they do, they have to rebuild this nation. They go back to their old tales and stories and laws. And they start writing them down for the first time. Because it's like, we might be dispersed again. We've got to like, record this. We can't just rely on the older generation to pass it down to us. Um, and one of the first things they do collectively is they gather together to hear the law read out loud. So here's Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came, the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and and all who could hear with understanding. He read it from facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. So I think most of you here got here at 8.15 a.m., I assume we're talking about seven, six o'clock, all the way to midday before it gets too hot. Men, women, teenagers, anyone can hear of understanding, preteens are gathering together. And why was this such hunger for the law? This is the first time we're really seeing this kind of collective desire for law. And I think a big part of the reason is, like I said, they are looking for moral guidance, for some kind of groundedness as to who they are. They're looking to these laws and saying, tell us who we are as a people so we can move forward. They want moral instructions. and so. But the problem is that these oral stories and laws that they've passed down don't necessarily easily lend themselves to present application. Like how does this thing about Adam and Eve help us figure out in this Babylonian exile, uh, post-Babylonian exile, how to live? Like it's not clear, it's not right there. So what they do is they interpret it. So here is in Nehemiah chapter 8 again. Also Jeshua, I'm going to skip through all the names, uh, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It's super important. So you have Ezra like reading out the law, and then you have this group of people helping the, everyone else interpret and make sense of the law. And so, making basically connecting the dots from the past to the present, which is basically an act of interpretation. And so, let me give you an example of what they did. Um, this is Philo. He's a, uh, I don't have a slide up because it's a last minute insertion. Um, he's a sort of first century Jewish interpreter, and he interprets the story of Abraham, you know, how he leaves his hometown Ur because God calls him and he goes to the land of Canaan. Um, so typically it's a story about, like, your great 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 came from this place to this place, and that's why we're here. Like, that's the historical, like, meaning would be. But Philo interprets it and says, The departure from home as depicted by the literal text of Scripture was made by a certain wise man, Abraham. But according to the rules of allegory, it is made by the soul of anyone fond of virtue who is searching for the true God. So, Philo is saying this is not just a story about your immigration history, basically. Um, it's a story about any soul who is searching for the true God. So, anyone can see themselves in Abraham. So, Philo is trying to make the story relevant for the present context. So, that is one big thing the ancient interpreters do. And that's kind of, that shifts a new paradigm. It changed just, you know, it from a collection of stories that your family told and lost to the Torah, to scripture, to the word, to how I think all of us experience the Bible today. So that's the first big change that ancient interpreters do. The second big change, which is probably a bit more important, is that in the interpretation, they are much more concerned with a spiritual reading of scripture than a historical reading of scripture. So in Phila's take, it's much more important to see the story of Abraham as a story of any soul looking for God or for virtue than it is about your great-grandfather who did this, and that's how we got here. So I'll give you another example, uh, a more familiar story, perhaps Genesis. So Genesis 1, we read the world was created um, in six days. The first day it was light, and the fourth day we have sun, stars, moon. And that kind of posed a bit of contradiction to the ancient interpreters. And one of their assumptions was the Bible cannot have contradiction. So how can you have days without the sun? How can you have days without, you know, moon, sun, all that stuff? And the other thing they noticed was, you know, this this curse, uh, this warning that God gives Adam. You may eat from any tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of knowing good and evil. Because on the day that you eat from it, you shall die. So we know that Adam does not die on the day he eats. In fact, he lives until 930 years. So the ancient interpreters, they're like, okay, there's a meaning here, there's a mystery, we'll just figure out. So they pull this verse from Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are as yesterday, the way it passes, or like a watch in the night. And they say, okay, so to God, a thousand years equals one day. So, this resolves the contradiction of Adam living to 930 years, because one day means a thousand years, and, you know, roughly equivalent. And the world's created not in six days, but 6,000 years, etc. So, that's one thing they do. And they're, they're, they're like, really good at this creative sort of gymnastics a little bit throughout. Um, the another thing they do is they look and they think about, okay, nowhere in Genesis does it say that All humans have to die. They just say that Adam and Eve, whoever eats the fruit, has to die. And yet we all clearly die. But none of us ate the fruit. You know, it's not our fault. So they kind of create this theory that when Adam ate the fruit and they became sinful, they like passed on the sin to their generations, and then that's why we all die. And so that's how you get knowledge of original sin, the fall of man phrases that, if you look in the Bible, do not exist. Like, nowhere in the Bible does it say, like, this is where sin originates, or original sin, or, you know, the fall of man. But this is baked into our assumptions of how we read Genesis, such that if you ask most people, they would think those phrases exist in the Bible. And so... um, The the reason why I mention this is that Paul takes this ancient interpreter notion of Genesis and builds off in it. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. So Paul is taking this and saying, Adam, Christ, like first Adam, second Adam, basically. Adam got you sin and death, and Christ is giving you resurrection and new life. And so you see how there's the Torah, there's the ancient interpreters, and then there's the New Testament writers, all of which are just interpreting each other's text. Um, and I think it's, it can be a little bit scary if you think about it. I mean, the word Trinity is not in our Bible, and that's also something we like, all believe. And it can be scary because you might think, oh, wait, if you really want to be true to the Bible, let's get rid of all this stuff. You know, let's get rid of the original sin, let's get rid of, I don't know, the Trinity or what have you. Um, or I think the other option, and I think that's one option that could be valid, the other option is that you just embrace it. <laughs> and you just embrace the fact that this thing is just like interpreted, like, you know, like in and it itself, it is interpreting itself. And I think that's part of the route I I try to take. Um, And the, the thing is, the thing that I really love about how the ancient interpreters interpret the text is that they really prioritize, as I mentioned, the spiritual meaning over the historical meaning. So James Kugel, the historian I mentioned, writes this. For most, this is really quick, most of the Bible's history, it was the words of Scripture and its lessons that were all important. The historical reality of the events being described was altogether secondary So the upshot of this means that whether Adam and Eve literally existed, whether they were actual people, is not so important as the spiritual meaning of the story. And for Christians, it means the story is about how things got bad, how we got separated from God, or felt we were separated from God, and now how Christ paves the way back to God. And so if we miss that meaning and we get so caught up on Adam and Eve that they really exist, we miss the point of the story. And you can apply that kind of logic to most passages in the Bible. Um, And in the 13th century, this way of reading scripture got so systematized that they actually medieval um, sages came up with four meanings you can get from scripture. The literal meaning, the moral meaning, the allegorical meaning, and the anagogical meaning. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like what happens in the end times, I think. And so, you know, I, I don't have time to go into all four meanings, but I just want to say it's, it's really baked into our tradition. It's part of our tradition to embrace a multiplicity of answers, that there could be multiple meanings out of a verse. I'm talking something in the 13th century, in the 6th century. I'm not talking about a progressive fad that forefront just made up because we're like Justin Janus church. Like, we're, we're not making things up here. Um, and so, you know, my question is how do we lose, if we have four ways of return to Scripture, how did it get stripped down to just one? How do we just trip down to just like the literal meaning is the most important section? I have a friend who got fired from a big church in New York City because he taught a lesson that Adam and Eve maybe were not real actual individuals. How does our faith hang on these literal facts? And I think, I I don't mean to say that scripture is not divinely inspired. I think it's absolutely true that we believe it is as a church. I believe it is. But the point is that. When we embrace interpretation, we are saying that wherever there is divinity, humanity is intermingled with it. And I think this is not just like a fun academic exercise of history of the Bible. I think there are very real life stakes. Because if if you are afraid of embracing, you know, interpreting text for your own context, and you believe you just have to submit yourself to the literal meaning, I think that's how you get my, you know, 14-year-old self. lying on the floor, trying to somewhat squeeze the weight of my feelings into like the squiggles and the lines of the text. And, you know, even 10 years later, when I become affirming, I change my view of scripture, I come out, it's really hard to shake the feeling of being traumatized by the text. I think many people come up with some trauma from scripture, and it's hard to get back into those habits of reading the Bible regularly. And so, Despite all that, I think I come back over and over again to one of my favorite verses, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in which Paul writes, the church of the living God is the pillar and bulwark of truth. I think it's really important because Paul does not write the Bible is the pillar and bulwark of truth. It's a bit radical, the statement here. It says the church. Now, if you remember some of Jonathan's sermons, some of my sermons, we talk about how the Spirit, you know, in the Gospel of John will guide us to all truth. Some of you might be saying, well, shouldn't, you know, the Spirit be? Well, the question is, how does the Spirit work but through people? The Spirit works through people, through the church. And I think this is why it says it's a church of the living God, because the Spirit is alive and working through us as we interpret and reimagine Scripture and build and uphold truth. We are, in essence, living Scripture. So when I... I'm really harping on this interpretation point, because when we affirm the role interpretation, it means we affirm those who interpret, which means we affirm us. We affirm the fact that we are created in the image of God, that we have reasoned, imagination, empathy, experiences to craft meaning of the Bible. And I know some of us, we have various levels of biblical literacy. Some of us memorize the book, basically. Some of us can't remember which testament is which. But regardless, I think we can be assured of the fact that our lives are testaments, that our lives are testimonies to the love of God and of others. And our bodies bear the marks of death and resurrection. And I think we can take a stand in the fact that we are living scripture. Let us pray together. God, I thank you that um, we together as a church are a pillar and bulwark of truth, that we are the church of the Living God, that your spirit works in us today, that in someone who is maybe opening up the Bible for the first time and trying to discern what's happened, and maybe is afraid of doing the wrong thing, I pray thank you that your spirit is at work with them to bring alive the text for the first time. Or maybe it's someone's returning to Scripture in such a long time, it's been a couple of decades, and they're afraid of it, there's so much trauma related to it, I'm mean, going to thank you that your spirit is at work in them, in their lives, Um, to bring out words that we used to harm and now words that can be used to heal and to liberate. I pray for this liberation in all of us. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.